Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry, and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Maranatha. Grace and peace to you. Before we open up God's word, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we get to now uh, go to you and go into your word. We pray that your spirit would guide us. Your spirit would illuminate your word that you would draw near to us even as we seek to draw near to you, and that we would be transformed through the gospel uh, by the power of your Spirit at work in our midst. Lord, we, we thank you for this time. I pray for my brothers and sisters, though we are scattered, I pray that your Spirit would, would, would cause our hearts to, to be united um, in one vision and one purpose to proclaim the gospel, to live in light of the gospel, to bring glory to you, to make much of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would even be at work doing that even during this time as we consider your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, church, in our day, a lot is made about revenge, retaliation, comebacks, and clapbacks. Uh, from the White House to the angry blogger down the street or our own Twitter feeds, we see revenge and play, uh, paybacks play out in real time. And, and as this happens, don't we see the carnage that is left in the wake of those seeking retribution and retaliation? And because this is so, 
Stories of forgiveness, when they come, they often take center stage and steal the national uh, narrative. You may recall a number of years ago when members of the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, forgave Dylan Roof, the young man who, who, who uh, killed those attending a prayer meeting. Or even last fall when Brant uh, Jean forgave the officer who killed his brother and then crossed the courtroom to embrace her in a hug. These stories capture our attention because I think deep down we long for forgiveness to play out in the world and in our lives. It moves us, one, because it's beautiful, but it also speaks to a deep need that we all feel. And among one of the greatest stories of forgiveness that the Bible gives us is, comes to us in our passage in, the, in chapter 45 of Genesis that was just read for us. Our passage today is at the climax of this narrative. This is, everything has been moving to this moment. This, all this tension has been built up. And as Paul Mueller preached last week, the brothers, after bringing Benjamin to Egypt, were then set up uh, by Joseph and uh, with, with him placing the cup in Benjamin's sack. He tests them, and instead of, of the brothers saving themselves, letting Benjamin be taken by Joseph, Judah, the one who we've seen transform maybe the most in over these chapters, sacrifices himself for the sake of the brothers and out of love for his father. At this gesture, Joseph falls apart. And as, and as was read, we see this big reveal. You know, like the move that bus reveal. Joseph reveals himself to be the one whom they sold into slavery. And the brothers are in a bit of shock, and they're terrified. And we can understand. It's like they're seeing a ghost. But what's even more surprising, what's even more shocking, is Joseph's response. He forgives he forgives his brothers who had done great harm to him. And this story, as a result, is just beautiful. It is touching. It's full of emotion. But this story is more than the sum of its parts. It's meant to show us something about God. You, you may recall last week that Paul spoke about how this narrative, this story, points us to this bigger story of God's redemptive work. So this story is, is it a shadow or a type of the gospel message of redemption. What I'm saying then is that this passage, in this passage, we see more than a family being reunited. What we're seeing is the very heart of God at work in forgiveness in the hearts and the lives of his people. What we're seeing is the very heart of God at work to bring about forgiveness in the hearts and lives of his people. So because of this, this story is not just a story, but it is here to instruct us, to teach us about the kind of forgiveness that God invites us into, to delight in. And so in our time, I want to... Just consider a number of ways about how this passage teaches us about forgiveness. And the first is that forgiveness is an offer of grace. 
Look back at chapter 45, verses 1 through 6. Then Joseph could not control himself because of all those who stood, um, stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence, or terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, or so Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve you. Joseph reveals himself. He disarms their fears and embraces them as family. And in the context of these previous chapters, we're to feel the suspense of this scene. I hope that you would, you're able to feel it, even though if this story is familiar, we're supposed to feel how amazing and this tension and the suspense was building to this moment. We're supposed to be asking, what is Joseph going to do? Could you imagine being in that room? We, as as seeing from a bird's eye view, we've seen the transformation of the brothers. We've seen the struggles of what Joseph has gone through. And now they're face to face. And we're, we, we feel it as we read. And in this moment, it is astounding that Joseph's response is one of grace and not revenge. It, it's of mercy, not of malice. Joseph has the power and the right to give his brothers nothing but cold justice, and instead he shows them grace, undeserved favor and kindness by forgiving them. He does not turn the knife. He doesn't weaponize his hurt, demanding that they account for the 20 years of life he lost. Instead, he shows them grace. It's remarkable because it's so undeserved. It's remarkable because it cuts against how we often respond in situations where we have been hurt. In this way, Joseph is showing us that he's a type of Christ, that he is highlighting how God deals with his people. You know, there was a heresy or false teaching in the church that originated around the year 144 with the teachings of a person named Marcion. This teaching has resurfaced resurface at different times uh, with some various um, iterations, but at the core of it, he taught that there's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament, and they're different. And the God of the Old Testament ruled with a cold justice, ruthlessly enacting justice, uh, or, or, or ruthlessly ena enacting his, um, his reign and his righteousness. And while the God of the New was all of love and of grace. But this is not what we see here. God, through Joseph, is showing us that he is all about grace from Genesis to Revelation. He does not give the brothers what they deserve. Instead, he shows them grace. Instead, he 
he, he shows them this, this kindness that they did not deserve. And he does so because this is his very nature, always and forever. This is exactly how God has acted toward us. God has extended forgiveness, not because we earned it, or would somehow prove over time that we would somehow be more deserving of it than others. God extended grace because he himself is gracious. Listen to the way that God describes himself, his glory, to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Do you remember Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock and the Lord passes by him and Moses hears these words, the Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In the New Testament, we see that Paul tells us that God forgives out of the riches of his grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood, Paul writes in Ephesians 1.7. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God gives grace to sinful people because it is part of his very nature. It is who he is. Like the brothers, we deserve wrath for sin. But God, in his grace, forgives sinners. In fact, he specializes in this. Ed Welch, uh, a writer, a teacher, said, has said, <clears throat> quote, Our Father is simply inclined to forgive. This distinguishes him from all invented gods and from all of humanity. He is eager to forgive at the slightest hint that we acknowledge our sin and guilt, end quote. God invites us into this grace, not by merit or by right or righteousness of our own, but as gift. He invites us saying, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool, the writer of Isaiah tells us. The way we come to the Lord to reason with him is through the acknowledging of our sin. Said differently, in order to receive the gift of grace, this gift of grace, this forgiveness, there must be an acknowledgement of need for it, of, of wrong done. And so forgiveness is, forgiveness is an offer of grace. But number two, forgiveness comes on the basis of repentance. <clears throat> Forgiveness is an act of grace, but it is not something that is frivolously doled out. It, instead, forgiveness ought to be extended to the repentant and is extended to the repentant one. Uh, Chris Braun, in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, uh, it, it, it's, I recommend that book to you. It is, it's a challenging book. It'll, it'll, uh, force you to think deeply about forgiveness is that, quote, Christian forgiveness is a commitment to the repentant. And, and what he's saying is this, and, and it might help to define what forgiveness is um, then. So Chris, Christian forgiveness is a commitment to the repentant. And, and we can define forgiveness in this way, quote, forgiveness, or um, this isn't a quote from Chris Braun, but 
It's based a lot from his book. Forgiveness is a gracious choice to no longer hold an account of one's moral liability of a wrong committed against us based upon the repentance. In other words, forget, let me say that again. Forgiveness is a gracious choice to no longer hold an account of one's moral liability of a wrong committed against us based upon their repentance. True forgiveness, then, is not just releasing someone in our hearts or just moving on of saying it's not a big deal. For forgiveness to be extended, repentance needs to be evident. This is also something we see in this passage. Judah, the spokesman for the brothers, rightly sees that the hand of God is against him. He recognizes their guilt, the justice they deserve. And Judah said, in verse, and listen to what Judah says in verse chapter 44, verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Forgiveness is not merely a a therapeutic exercise. It's not an individual event. Forgiveness is a particular thing between specific parties. You see, repentance then demonstrates an acknowledgement of sin. It refuses to put it off or just to to blow it off, to minimize it or to look the other way. Repentance doesn't blame shift or soften the blow. It doesn't justify by comparing to others. I wasn't as bad as they. Repentance shows that the recognition and confession of one's guilt, it's an acknowledgement and a turning away from that course of action and posture. Judah's response shows that the brothers have finally faced the reality of their sin. They're ready to accept the responsibility. And Joseph, it's important to note that he doesn't just push it off as no big deal. Look at what he says in verse 5. In verse 4 and 5, he says, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He's saying, look, what you did was wrong. What you're doing is, what you did was evil. They're both calling it what it is. You know, maybe that you've, you've been on the other side of when people have tried to minimize their sin. Or they've qualified it away. When someone says, like, I'm sorry, but never addresses the specific issue, or they offer a qualified apology. I'm sorry if I've ever made you feel this, this, this particular way. You know what that feels like. It feels trite. As a result, it's hard to really extend forgiveness because the foundation for the need and the impact of sin is not rightly understood. So I want to just say, before we move on any further... I can imagine that some of you are thinking right now as I've tried to unpack this a little bit, that what if somebody never apologizes? What if they never repent? What then? How do we move on? Well, one, we can go to that person. But some of you, I know that you probably have experienced like the ways that people have sinned against you and, and time has moved on. Maybe they've died or moved away or you've just completely lost contact and there's no way... That, that you two will ever 
be able to have that interaction again, to be able to make things right. In this case, you may not be able to extend forgiveness in this proper sense, whether they don't repent and they never turn, or you just, there's no more opportunity left in, in this lifetime, on this side of eternity. However, I don't think you're bound to, to remain in that grief, in that hurt. Instead, I invite you to ask the Lord to give you peace, help, even to restore what was lost, taken, or broken through the action of another. You can ask the Lord to help keep your heart from bitterness and anger. You can, help, you can ask the Lord to help you remember that He is still at work for your good, even though, even through hard and difficult and sometimes terrible situations. And lastly, you can entrust that person, that party, that group, to the Lord's justice and even His grace. Perhaps this is the very thing that kept Joseph all those years in prison, all those years from bitterness and anger. Perhaps he was doing these very things that primed the pipe pump for him that when his brothers did finally come, he was able to forgive. That he was, his heart was ready because he, of the way that he had entrusted this situation to the Lord. Perhaps that you're the person You've sinned against someone that you can no longer connect with. I would invite you to bring that to the Lord as well. Acknowledge that, that sin before the Lord. Repent before the Lord. You too no, need, need, no longer need to live under the weight of sin and grief. There is forgiveness for you. And the reason that we ought to take that to the Lord is that we're reminded that of the fact that our sin is first and foremost against God. Yes, we sin against others. Yes, our sin, our sin and the sin of others impact the horizontal relationships. But sin primarily is an offense against God. And the way that we that our sin offends the holiness of his character is a far greater consequence and has far greater impact. That sin has separated us from him and has put his wrath upon us. It has caused his wrath to, to remain on us. This is why David writes, after he sins with Bathsheba, he kills Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband. He says, for I know my transgressions excuse me, for my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only. He's talking to the Lord. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? He did sin against others, but he recognized the priority of his sin was first against God. And so therefore, the primary emphasis was that he ought to seek forgiveness from God. He would be that God's wrath was far worse than any other's. And here's the good news, is that Christ came to rescue and to forgive sinners. That the way we experience this is not by works, but by turning from our sin to repentance. Forgiveness is based in repentance, based upon repentance. And turning to Christ in faith. Repentance and faith always go together. 
See, God's forgiveness is not extended universally, but to the repentant. God forgives those who repent. This is the, one of the great calls of Scripture, to turn away from your sin so that you will be forgiven of sin. This is exactly what we see in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. After calling out the people for their rejection and crucifixion of Christ, the people are cut to the heart. They can't go back and uncrucify Jesus. They're stuck and they're cut to the heart. They know that they're guilty. They see their sin and cry out much like Judah does in chapter 44 on account of their guilt that is now before their very eyes. And they yell to Peter, what are we going to do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized. Repent and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And in this, we see that the power to forgive comes from God, from the work of God which is our third point. Forgiveness is grounded in the work of God. Joseph is able to forgive because he himself has trusted and has seen the hand of the Lord. He says this, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve your life. And he goes on in verse 7, and God sent me before you to keep you alive. And in verse 8, it was not you who sent me here but God. And in verse 9, hurry and go down to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. He sees the hand of God all over the place. One writer says this, The certainty that God's will, not man's, is the controlling reality in every event, shine through as the basis for reconciliation. No doubt, Joseph had consoled himself many times with this principle of faith. He who is spiritual can perceive the hand of God in every event and therefore is able to forgive those who wrong him. Joseph forgives by absorbing the sin his brothers had done to him. Forgiveness is free for the brothers, but it was costly for Joseph. He he chose to no longer hold their guilt over their heads. He released them from the guilt and the justice they deserved. He did not make them jump through hoops in in order to appease him. Yes, he tested them to see if they were truly repentant, but it's not this, this, he is not twisting the knife on them. And this is what God does for those who turn to him in repentance. God's grace comes to the repentant through the finished work of Jesus. God is gracious, but he's also just. He does show grace, but he's also just. And I want to I go back to Exodus 34, because I, I, I intentionally left out part of what God had revealed about himself to Moses. He said, remember that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. How can there be forgiveness? How can God be gracious and just at the same time? How, will there, how can there be forgiveness if God will no, me, no way clear the guilty? 
he does so by taking the consequences of sin on himself. He absorbs the blow. God forgives not through saying, hey, you didn't know any better. Hey, you did the best you could. He does not simply say, I know you feel badly about sin. He, his forgiveness is not waving a magic wand over people saying, abracadabra, all your sins are gone. God's forgiveness comes by grace to the repentant through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God's grace and his justice are manifest in the love that caused him to send his own son to bear the penalty for sins he did not commit. This is what Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Here's what it means, is that there's actual forgiveness. There's full forgiveness. The story between Joseph and his brothers is beautiful and it's moving because it points us to this better story. God is showing us his grace and his kindness. He does show us his justice too in this. And, and, and he's showing how the love with which he loved us, that he would take the consequence for sin on himself to purchase our redemption. Mark Twain uh, famously said, man is the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to. In other words, we know that we know that we have done wrong. We know that we have skeletons in our own closet. We know that we've sinned against God and others. We, we, and, and as a result, we all hunger for forgiveness. We all know we need it. And Twain is saying nothing different than what Paul writes in Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Jesus came to save sinners, to, to bear the wrath reserved that, that we deserved. He absorbed the blows of the consequences of our sin so that we might be forgiven. Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins that comes by grace through repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ? He frees us from the penalty of sin. There may still be consequences for our sin. In, in this world, but, but the, the wrath, the separation, the eternal separation of our sin, he takes that away. He makes us white as snow. With his wounds, we are healed. And see, it is through this forgiveness that we come to our fourth point. Forgiveness welcomes us into a true freedom. It is through this forgiveness that we are welcomed into a, experiencing a beautiful new freedom, a new relational dynamic, a new paradigm. You see, Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers changed the relationship dynamic completely. Beginning in verse 7 through 13, Joseph outlines the plan for the rest of the family to rescue them, to care for them, to live reunited again. 
He tells them not to be distressed or angry. In other words, put away your guilt and shame. No longer dwell on the past. Let's live in light of this restored relationship. And this is what Jesus offers us too. On account of the forgiveness of sins, we've been restored to relationship with God. Through Jesus, we are made part of God's eternal family. We're reconciled to him, not, because, not as mere creatures, but as sons and daughters that have been united with Christ. Our lives are intimately connected with his. Now, Joseph's family is going to move, and on the basis of their relationship, they will have land, food, protection. They're going to have a future. They were good as dead. Now they're going to thrive. Jesus grants us this and more. Being forgiven, we are freed from the guilt and wrath our sins deserve. We are liberated from the weight of sin and covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Through our, though our sins were like scarlet, he has washed us white as snow. And as he gives us an eternal future where we will dwell in the presence of God forever and ever. I know some of you will say, I, I believe God forgives. Uh, I've asked them for forgiveness, but I still feel the weight of my sin. I still feel the guilt of it and shame of it. You may hold it out for others, but there are things that God can't forgive you for, that you feel like God can't forgive you for, that his grace is insufficient. Friend, let me just say, first of all, God's grace was sufficient for Paul, a murderer, and, a, and one who despised the people of God. It was good for Peter, a traitor. It was, good for, it was sufficient enough for David, an adulterer and a murderer. It was, good, it was sufficient for these brothers, too. God's grace is sufficient for you. A friend of mine says it like this, you cannot, you cannot out-sin the blood of Jesus. Ed Welch again says it like this. Don't say, how could God forgive me that? Whatever that is. Don't think that God's forgiveness is a begrudging forgiveness. And, and with that thought, deny some, uh, some of God's glorious love. And don't think that God's promises are only for other people. If this is how you're thinking, you must realize that your own sins, no matter how big, are not bigger than God's pleasure in forgiveness. So friend, if you are struggling to, to, you're still carrying that shame and that grief and the, the feeling of guilt, I would invite you to look at the cross of Jesus. There you see Christ in your place, who took the wrath of God, who bore your guilt, who bore your shame to bring you forgiveness. Friend, his grace is sufficient for all who come to him in repentance, seeking his grace. as we lean into this forgiveness and trust that through Christ and because of Christ, God's wrath, which was once our due, has been replaced with by his shining countenance, his favor and promise to keep us forever in the warmth of his glory are ours to enjoy, to live, to walk in. He has given us more than the land of Goshen. He has made us co-heirs with Christ. His Forgiveness brings us into true freedom, true joy, true delight. And lastly, it changes us from the inside out. 
And if, if you have experienced the grace of God, it changes you. And this is what we see. They move from speechlessness to awe, to tears, to joy, to talking with one another again, as we see in the, in the end of, of, of verses 14 and 15. We see the outpouring of emotion from Joseph and Benjamin. The brothers begin to talk. They fellowship. The dynamic of this family has been transformed. And this is true for all who experience forgiveness from the Lord. It changes you. To know the favor of God, to know the forgiveness of God, to know the cost of your sin and the love of God that pursued you to redeem you, changes you. And as you experience the radical grace of God through the forgiveness of sin, it creates in us a desire and the capacity to forgive others. And one of the marks of the forgiven is that they model that very same forgiveness. You may recall the parable that Jesus told of the man whose debt to the king was massive. Yet the king showed him mercy and forgave the debt. And as soon as, as this man, that the forgiven man, walked out of the courtroom of the king, he saw the man who owed him a far smaller amount, and in, and in comparison, an insignificant amount. And instead of forgiving that man, he chokes him out demanding payment. When the king was told of this, he threw the first man in prison. This is a picture of the one who fails to recognize the debt that he has been forgiven by God. This is why Jesus says at the end of uh, the Lord's Prayer, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Look, Jesus is not saying that we earn our salvation, but the way that we forgive is a reflection of that which we have been forgiven. And as such, the way we forgive others is meant to be a picture of the gospel. Our world is rife with revenge and settling the score. Forgiveness, on the other hand, points people to the gospel. It points people to Jesus. Brian Chapel says this, and, and, and he says, By forgiving, we do become Christ to others. By bearing in our bodies the weight of unjust accusations, undeserved pain, and unretaliated harm, we are the Holy Spirit's message of Jesus to others. By the practice of forgiveness, we have the privilege of being a living witness to the ones we most love and who, love, have, who has loved us eternally and sacrificially, end quote. By forgiving, we become Christ to others. So let me ask, as we close, what will this look like in our lives? One, if you've been forgiven by God, it means, it is a means for great rejoicing and thankfulness before God. To give praise Two, it will mean that we will be a people who forgive even as we've been forgiven. This does not mean that there are no consequences for sin or that we should not desire justice to be done. Not at all. But when we forgive based on repentance, we, are no, longer, we no longer desire revenge or spiritual harm. Instead, forgiveness will look like longing for the offending party to come to recognize their sin, to repent and be renewed in Christ and with others. Desire their good and their healing, their flourishing, not to make them a spectacle. 
It will be, it will be hard like it was for Joseph, like it was for Jesus. But in this, we find that the Lord is with us and gives us incredible grace to forgive even as we've been forgiven. Lastly, this, this story ought to show us and t- ask, uh, cause us to ask, have we, one, been, do we have this forgiveness from the Lord? Have we repented for our sin before the Lord, for, the, for our salvation, for the cleansing of our sin before a holy God? And two, are there those that we need to seek repentance and forgiveness of, or that we ought to grant forgiveness to? These are hard things, and I invite you to, to go to the Lord in prayer about them. Because at the end of the day, this, this passage is more than a story. It's a picture of the good news of God's grace, a grace that fr- forgives, a grace that frees. It's a grace that transforms us into be, to be agents of grace in the world around us. In this, we see God's forgiveness in, in all of its beauty being played out for us And as we read it, it's an invitation for us to step into that too. May the Lord bless you.